everybody, and welcome back to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is episode number 17 for Wednesday, December 30th, 2009. And it's the end of the year. I'm still Paul Fox. And I'm still Kevin in a mountain, but not in a cave, Ma. <laughs> and we are here to talk to you about some of the bigger films of the holiday season. So this will be a little bit of a special episode. We'll be foregoing some of our usual segments uh, to try and cram in as many of the holiday films that we've seen as possible. Um, so, Kevin, in the spirit of the holiday, um, how was your holiday? Um, I didn't really have much of a holiday, Paul, because I just started having a holiday uh, two days ago when I finished trying to finish all my work. So you didn't have a white Christmas? Um, it was kind of a cloudy Christmas. If you white, the only thing that was white was the clouds in, in the sky Yeah, here in Hong Kong, in, in the air, actually. Yeah, well, I missed I missed the white Christmas. Um, I was back stateside. I was in North Carolina first, visiting relatives, and two days after I left North Carolina and and ended up in Florida, um, they had this massive cold front come through, and they got snow in North Carolina, and I was really upset because never seen snow, and I missed it by two days. And I got down to Florida, and it was like shorts and t-shirt weather. It was really hot and really humid. Um, so I had a humid Christmas, I would say. Well, I'm sure it, once you see snow, then you would start missing the Florida Christmas fall, I think. You think so? I don't know. I've always wanted to, like, you know, snowball fight and building the snowman and snow angels. And I don't know. I, maybe it's overrated. But uh, well, I'm sure the, the Australians would tell you that. The entire Southern Hemisphere would tell you that a white Christmas is overrated. <laughs> yeah, I guess they would. saw a boatload of movies while I was back in the States. Pretty much um, every day I was either out at the cinema or at home relaxing watching stuff I had rented from Blockbuster. I saw uh, a bunch of stuff I'd been wanting to see that I hope maybe we'll get around to talking about later. Um, Princess and the Frog, the, the new Disney um, traditional sort of uh, 2D animation. I uh, saw The Road. I uh, saw a bunch of other stuff. Uh, the Hangover which I finally got to see on video, which was uh, very, very funny. Um, and some of the films we're going to talk about today, uh, but before we get into a lot of what I got to see over in the States, let's talk about some of the stuff that was going on in here in Hong Kong. So for our East Screen picks this week, um, we're going to jump back in time a little bit, uh, back to December 10th with the release of Storm Warriors. Um, also known as Storm Riders 2, the sequel to the very famous um, special effects extravaganza uh, that was released in Hong Kong back in the 90s. So, Kevin, you want to give us a little bit of a synopsis of Storm Warriors, and we'll go through some of our thoughts on this new version of this film? Well, you know, usually I give um, very brief synopsis to movies, 
And uh, usually it's because I don't really know how to give synopsis. But for this one, it's just because there's not much of a story to tell. Um, Storm Warriors kind of connects to the first film, Storm Riders, um, as in it, it takes place a long time after the first film ends. Um, here we begin by seeing uh, Cloud, played by Aaron Kwok, being captured with his, um, his master, Nameless, uh, played by an AV star actor named Hulk, Hulk Hogging. I uh, forgot his English name at the time. Um, and uh, there's a new villain out um, who is Godless. Is that his name? Do you remember? Yeah, oh, I Godless, think it was right? Godless. Yeah, yeah Godless. Uh, reportedly a Japanese uh, warlord played by Simon Yam. And his, and his son is also played by Nicholas Se. Um, so they managed to escape capture. And uh, thanks to Win, uh, played by Ikin, everyone's favorite Watsai. Um, and then they go off, and in order to fight uh, Godless, uh, Cloud decides to, well, no, sorry, Wind. Wind decides to go into training, and even though it might involve him going to the dark side, and I think literally at one point the subtitle said the dark side, um, he undergoes a training anyway. Meanwhile, Cloud goes, follows Nameless to do his own training to, to um, essentially uh, advance his own uh, Kung Fu, I guess that's the word. Um, meanwhile, um, Godless goes and captures the emperor of the country and uh, forces him to lead him to this uh, MacGuffin called the Dragon Bone. So um, will Wind and Cloud uh, finish their training in time to fight Godless? Will uh, the female character says more than the other characters' names? Will the people actually start moving when they talk? Those are the big questions of Storm Warriors. And the answer to all those questions are D... All of the above. Yes. I'm oh, sorry. No. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, that is that is a, a fairly good synopsis. If you could give this this film uh, a synopsis at all. So, what do you think? Did the you know was this um, did this meet all of your expectations? Because some of us were really pumped going into seeing this film. Because as we had talked about in the last episode, the original Storm Warriors or Storm Riders. Um, had had such a really big impression, you know, on us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I told my cousin yesterday, if there's, oh, there's with, with all this source material, there is no way you can botch a Storm Rider sequel. But then if there is one way you could botch a Storm Rider sequel, this is it, essentially. <laughs> it, it has, the, the whole movie, the, the plot is, is, is thinner than a, than a single ply toilet paper. It's, the special effects are quite nice. Uh, let's face it, uh, the, the, it's quite advanced for, for what Hong Kong cinema has done. Um, and and audio-wise, it's, it's quite uh, bombastic. But the story completely fails on all counts. The, there are no characters in this film. It's, it's practically impossible to penetrate this story without watching the first one. And even if you've seen the first one, there is no reason for you to keep watching the second one because it refers to almost nothing in the first film. Yeah, I think that was one of my bigger disappointments in the film in, in that it was such a disconnect from the first film. I mean, as you as you said, it picks up a, a cons it, what seems to be a considerable amount of time later um, after the events of the first film, and you're introduced to characters that never even appeared in the first film. Um, characters such as Nameless, who, if you, I guess if you read the comics which I haven't read any of the comics, but if you've read the comics, you would have an idea of who this character was and, and 
when he came into the lives of Wind and Cloud, but that's never established in, in the first film. And it just sort of, the movie starts off with him there um, in this film. The other thing that I, I tend to have difficulty with, and I think this is more indicative of the comics though, is, is that by the end of the first movie, Wind and Cloud, you know, have, have garnered their talents and risen up to defeat the, you know, the, the antagonist of that movie. And in doing so are seemingly very, very powerful. And yet here, you know, they're confronted with this new menace who seems to have just come from nowhere. Because again, this is not a character, you know, Simon Yam's character Godless did not appear. He was never mentioned in the first film. The first film was all about, you know, Sonny Chiba's character as this warlord who conqueror who commanded all these territories and was supremely powerful. So you've got this sort of new character coming from nowhere and he is himself um, ultimately powerful, powerful enough to defeat, you know, in the early stages, wind and cloud and have, have captured them somehow and captured nameless as well. Who's considered even more superior than these two characters. And so then it simply becomes going through the motions of, you know, Oh, they've got to go off and they've got to train. They train themselves to come back and to, you know, defeat, defeat the character. And in just going through the motions, there's just not a whole lot of substance there. Uh, there's no, I, I don't recall seeing any outside uh, photography done at all. It seemed to be all done in set um, in, in somewhat small closed sets and in green screen rooms. It's like it's like the entire movie takes place on cliffs. Yeah, and so it doesn't have that same sense of dynamic space that the first film has. Um, the The cinematography is quite different, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But it, you know, the colors and and uh, I think that uh, you know the the way that one of the things I really remember about the first film was the vivid colors coming through. Um, the, the costumes and everything. And here it's all kind of washed out and a little bit more gray, which, you know, again, is a, is a stylistic choice. And I think it's, it's fine. It could work, but it's not really enough on its own. The visuals and the effects are pretty, but it's, they're not enough on their own to sort of carry this through. Um, the characters are there, but there's actually really very little dialogue. So there's no real development. You don't get a sense of connection to anything. I mean, the the whole first film, the dynamic between these two characters is sort of the love triangle relationship between them and and the character of Charity, uh, who was played originally by Christy Yang, and how that sort of causes a split between the two of them. And here, you know, there's no there's no sense of that. There's no sense of brotherhood or you know, a dislike of each other because of that past relationship. Um, it's just, it's just very, very ambiguous, uh, and and sort of pushing these characters out there. So actually, actually, if it was ambiguously gay, it would have been better. <laughs> but it's just ambiguous. Yeah, I, and we do. I mean, we have you know Charlene Choi coming in to sort of take up a you know, sort of a love interest role for um, Wynn's character, Eakin's character. Um, and you have, I think it was, uh, Shu Chi who originally played, um, 
played the character in in the first film who shows up here but she is she's played by a different actress i can't remember her name yes um but even that is you know the character doesn't seem to have that same sense of um playfulness that was sort of originally brought out that of that character in the first film so yeah there's just there's just and perhaps that's something that the directors really wanted they wanted to maybe distance themselves from the original film to sort of make their own mark but unfortunately i just don't think it's that strong of a mark honestly i think what happened was that the pang brothers didn't care for the storm martyrs comic at all because the whole I, the whole start of this this martial arts film is that they want to do their own martial arts story, and then their boss at Universe made them adapt something that already exists. So that's mm. the only reason they took up the Storm Riders comic. Mm. So I think they don't really care for the. I think they rely way too much on the goodwill that was left on the first film, and they just assume that everyone who's seen the first film will see this one and they don't they feel like that would save them a lot of work in setting up things well, and that's a mistake i mean if that's the case they sh- they would have probably been better served to do a sequel to a man called hero since that was such a travesty <laughs> you know i mean because this is really a beloved film in i think much of the um you know hong kong film community that you know goes back and watches these films and, and really enjoys them i think a lot of the community would say you know this is a sort of a landmark film for hong kong cinema um, so to to sort of go back and try and reinvent it, I think may have been not 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 in the best judgment. Um, the interesting thing, though, I will say for this film, is that they pick this story, um, which again I haven't read the comics, but th- this story takes place and ends when it ends. It ends right where the animation that we talked about last time. Uh, Storm Riders Clash of Evils picks up. So if you watch the film and you get to the ending and you go, what, that's it? You know, what happens next? Because it is, it, it's it's sort of like a little bit of a cliffhanger ending. Um, <clears throat> Literally. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, when you get to that point and you say to yourself, well, you know, where does the story go from here? You can actually uh, pick it up right from that point. Although... It is told a little bit differently. I mean, there are things, I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but there are things that happen in in the Pang Brothers movie, um, you know, specific cause and effect things that that happen that do not happen in the animation. So if you can get get beyond that a little bit um, and you really just want to see, you know, from a narrative aspect, what happens to the characters right after the events of this film, you can watch the animation and, and the story will go on from there. To to a and and the, it you know it, it goes to a fairly solid conclusion. Uh, the animation does so, but that's the problem is that the Pang Brothers. I think they they know the existence of the animation and they relied too much on, or they were too worried about overlapping, and they shouldn't have. They should worry about making an individual film that works on its own. And what happens is that now they have the middle of a film that doesn't have a first part and a third part. Yeah, uh, to to get you know if if you're sitting in the west somewhere and this is really clear basically if you were to take um star wars the original star wars four four five and six i guess they'd be called now um and you have you know star wars four a new hope come out and then a little bit later lucas decides to do return of the jedi and then a little bit later somebody comes out 
and does their version of Empire Strikes Back. Um, so that's sort of sort of what you've got going on here. Um, so the out of sequenceness kind of maybe pigeonholed uh, the directors a little bit here. But I, I mean, the comics have been going on for you know a long time. I would I would imagine there are other stories in in there that they could have told. And again, there seems to be a whole lot of stuff going on between the events at the end of the the, the first film and and what we're given here. Yeah, I don't know if maybe that that area is not all that interesting, and so they wanted to focus more on this. But that's the problem. The nameless character actually was the coolest. I think comes off as the most impressive character of the whole film. Yeah. And I think a lot of people will agree. And he is in the Storm Riders mythology. He is one of the, he is probably one of the coolest character, one of the best characters of the whole yeah. comic. Yeah. But he they don't even bother setting him up. And the actor actually does very well um, here, and he made a very good impression. So it's even more frustrating that they didn't give him the more the time that he deserves. Yeah. What What would you say about Simon Yam? Simon Yam is Simon Yam is a bad guy. What can you say without without yeah. being perverted? Well, I mean, I, for, I, mean I, I like Simon Yam. Uh, I think he's really good in certain types of roles. Uh, I but just he's no don't think, Well, I don't think he's good in period pieces that much. Yeah. He just and, for, and, for me, yeah, he doesn't seem to fit. There's there's yeah. some actors who just don't seem to fit in period pieces, and and he didn't. I mean, it, it was it was like he was channeling election, but in armor. You know. <laughs> <laughs> no, the thing is, after how can you follow? Someone as good as Sonny Chiba. Yeah, I mean, even the guy who dubbed Sonny Chiba was better than all the actors in that movie <laughs> in Storm Riders. How can you top that performance? Yeah. So the only thing could top the performance get, I don't know, someone bigger get Takeshi Chitano to be in that armor. That's yeah. where you can top Sonny Chiba be the villain. So when you have someone like Simon Yan, who who you've probably seen about ten movies already this year, how how can you feel the 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 ominous the the whatever the power that that his, his character is supposed to give off yeah um i will say that i you know for their for their what what they were given uh, i think that both ekin and uh, aaron you know they did their roles well um again they didn't have a whole lot to work with because it, at, at its core this is an effects film um it's it's about the visuals and and the effects but i do think that you know it, it, i was happy to see them back doing these roles again even though they are considerably older uh and that it does kind of you 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 do get that sense uh, a little bit especially if you've recently watched storm riders and you see how they look in that film as compared to here um but overall i think that you know they they were fine i i do have a little bit of a it seemed like some of the art direction and some of the cinematography was really trying to channel 300 a little bit too much for my taste um, in some of the fight choreography. Um, but I think that, yeah, some of, some of, some of the visual concepts were very, very interesting. The, the techniques that like Aaron was using, which made sort of like this spider web mesh of energy to try and uh, crack the invulnerable armor of godless. I think, that was pretty pretty well done and pretty interesting. All right, well, let's move on to our next East Screen film, and that is the big Hong Kong and China production, Bodyguards and Assassins. I haven't had a chance to 
uh, get out and see this yet because this actually started while I was in the States and I'm, I've just only just gotten back and I'm still quite jet laggy. Haven't been able to actually get my bottom out into a theater as yet. But Kevin, you've seen this and you are the penultimate Donnie Yen fan. So uh, why don't you give us a little bit of a synopsis and some of your thoughts on Bodyguards and Assassins? Uh, fans are a little too much fun. <laughs> <laughs> I am a Donnie, um, I am a Donnie religion, I'm a Donnie cult follower. I okay, yeah. <laughs> yes. the cult of Don. The cult of the Don cult, so we call it. Um, anyway, Bodyguards and Assassins ha- does have Donnie Yen right for the poster, but actually he is not the main character. Um, I've seen this film twice now, so hopefully I can give a pretty thorough synopsis. Um, it's 1903, and it's Hong Kong, and um, it's the Qing Dynasty is still in power in China. And uh, Dr. Sunya's son, uh, he, he was in exile in Japan at the time. So in this sort of this fictional story uh, taking place in history, um, Sunya's son was going to take a day trip to Hong Kong. Because that's what we all do in 1903. We take day trips to Hong Kong by boat. Yeah, I mean, that's what, it, that's what it's there for. Just <laughs> let's do Hong Kong. It's like doing a yes. lunch, right? Yes. So um, he, well, he's there for more important pur- more important purpose than lunch. He's there to meet with um, the revolutionaries of China so they can come up with a way to essentially um, hold uprisings to overthrow the Qing dynasty. Um, so he's going there for a day. So uh, the revolutionary leader in Hong Kong, kind of played by Tony Leung Ka Fai, um, he's getting his, uh, his, I guess his, his, uh, his backer, financial backer, played by Wang Shui Chi, a businessman, to uh, back him up actually further to, 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 to make sure this visit goes, goes off as planned. Now, uh, first, uh, Tony, the revolutionary leader, because I'm just going to call these people by their archetype names now because that's what they are, archetypes. Uh, the revolutionary goes to find the um, circus troop uh, leader who was a general in the Chinese army, uh, exiled, of course, and to protect Sun Yat-sen in order to sort of gain back their honor. But the Qing dynasty also hears of this Sun Yat-sen trip, so he sends they send their best assassin, played by Hu Jun, uh, down to Hong Kong to take Sun Yat-sen out. Um, so, of course, this Hu Jun general character is quite powerful, so... Um, Whatever plans um, the revolutionary had is essentially destroyed. And now the businessman uh, has to find a ragtag group of uh, bodyguards to protect Sun Yat-sen as he travels along Central to the meeting. So then that's where, that's where Donnie comes in. He, um, he's a policeman, a corrupted policeman that first spied for the, um, the general. But then later on, uh, because of personal, personal reason, personal uh, motivation, switches sides. Um, also on the team of bodyguards include uh, Nicholas Se playing the rickshaw driver for the businessman's family, uh, kind of a simpleton, but very loyal. Uh, you also have a um, NBA player, Mangha Batir, playing a stinky tofu man who joins for the cause. Uh, also, um, you have the circuit troop leader's daughter, uh, played by Chinese pop star Li Yunchun, who is, uh, who is dubbed by Kate Tui in the Cantonese version. Um, also taking on the 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 role uh, as a bodyguard. So then you got this this the first hour of the film. Uh, actually, almost most of the film, um, about eighty five minutes of the film of the one hundred thirty eight minutes, is about how this businessman and the revolutionary group up these bodyguards. These bodyguards. So surprisingly, they were. I was quite surprised to see that they were the main characters of this big ensemble piece. And the actors, of course, 
when you have a big film like this, you want to choose reliable actors, and that's why Wang Shuiqi and Tony Leung are quite good picks because uh, they they they're quite good in this first hour, this exposition uh, section. Um, so then, but then the problem, my problem with the film, as you you guys might have read in my Love HK film review, is that I think the final hour, which promises a lot of action because it almost takes place in real time. As Sunyasen arrives in Hong Kong and travels through Central, and all these bodyguards are trying to protect him from these dangerous Qing Dynasty Qing court assassins, that the, the action doesn't really deliver. Um, you have a lot of big scenes, you know, a lot of arrows flying, and a lot of people getting hurt. But the way they shoot the action is very kind of modern. They have a lot of quick cutting, and they use a lot of close-ups to give the whole sequence an intensity. But the problem is that it's you never see what's going on. You're never involved enough with the action to see what's going on. Um, what they did really well is that they set up the characters and they give each of them a motivation as they go into this big final action sequence, this life and death um, hour, essentially an hour. Um, but the problem is that by the time the, you're expecting action, this film it doesn't really deliver. I think. Well, now let me ask. Um, let me ask you this. Um, because again, as you mentioned, this is a film that's it's not based in like historical fact, but you are dealing with a historical character here of Sun Yat-sen. And if you understand the history uh, somewhat, you kind of know the outcome. Uh, does that detract from any of the tension or any of the uh, any of the any of the story that's going on here? No, because with the fictional story, most of these characters are also fictional as well, except for the Tony Leung character. Only the Tony Leung character is, is in, does in fact exist. So you don't know where these characters are going to end up because they're fictional characters. Right. Um, you know how overall it, the plan works out, but you don't know how these characters are going to end up unless you've seen the trailer. Right. Honestly, if you haven't seen this film, don't watch the trailer. But is this, it, I mean, is this a case where there are too many characters and you don't really feel a strong connection to any of them? They just kind of, you know come and they go or or does the narrative work in such a way that it it makes you kind of root for uh certain characters and and hope that they make it out of this no no, definitely that's what the strong point of the film actually i think that might be strongest point next to the art direction is that they really did spend all this entire hour trying to set up these characters make you get involved with the motivation know who they are know what they what they need what they want and that's really the strongest part of the film is that you do get connected to these, even though you have about 10 characters to follow as second half of the film, you know where they're coming from by the time they get to that point. And that's really strong. I think it's, it's quite surprising. Even the, and like I said, Donnie is actually not the main character here. He appears, he has the film's most surprising moment. And of course he does all of the, most of the action, but he is actually not the main character of the film. Hmm. What, yeah. Would you now? You said you saw this twice. Was that because you needed to get there was like maybe too much information going on the first time, and you needed a second, a second viewing, or was it? Did you find it more entertaining and sitting through it a second time? Or um, no, the first time was to to do the review, to write the review for for the website, and the second time is because it sounds kind of sweet and kind of corny, but no, I wanted to see with the our movie group mm. to see the reaction. And actually, the second I should note that the second time I watched it, the expo- the exposition really did get kind of slow. It was getting kind of slow mm. the first hour, but the action did grow on me a little bit more. I I I'm 
I reacted better than the second hour, I think, than the first. Because now I know what to expect. I kind of just sort of sit back and enjoy what I know will happen. Just sort of, just sort of, I guess, I guess, sit in and and then sort of read into or look closer into it. So you know, so it's, it was the other way around. The first time I watched it, I, I enjoyed the first hour, but didn't really enjoy the second hour. But the second time I watched it, I didn't enjoy the first hour as much, but enjoyed the action a little more. So yeah, it is one well, of those movies that kind of it either grows on you as you think about it more, as you think about the whole thing more and how much it works, or or you kind of like it less because you think about what didn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and as but then, nevertheless, it's a big commercial film, big Chinese commercial film. It's quite strong in terms of everything, in terms of uh, uh, production, in terms of acting. Wang Shui-Chi is really good. Tony Leung Kafai does okay here. Nicholas Se, actually, I think uh, we all agreed at the screening that he did. He was very good here. Mm. He's very is a very un-Nicholas Se role. You can't imagine him doing this kind of role before he got busted for all those bad boy stuff. If he was trying to, if he was still in his development period, you wouldn't, you wouldn't imagine him doing something like this because it's essentially a very simpleton um, role that, that essentially opposite of what Nicholas Se is. How about so, the, how about the, um, is, is there a strong made for China sense in terms of any of the narrative points or the morality or? Is um, it is, it is very didactic in terms of um, talking about the ideals of the revolution. But um, for a Chinese, for a Chinese targeted film, the word democracy certainly got thrown around a lot. Hmm. Um, but of course, according to the official Chinese, uh, the PRC official official word is that democracy has been has already been achieved in China, so that's okay. Really, I missed it. Yes, I know. Where was that's, I? That's, <laughs> I mean, it was an alternate universe. I'm not sure. Yeah. But yeah, yeah like the very first scene, um, there was a cameo, uh, plenty of cameos in this film. Um, I'm not going to tell you who shows up when, but uh, tons of cameo. And the first cameo is in the very first scene of the film. And that character goes in the entire definition of the word democracy. <laughs> it, oh, wait, this, this, this thing that got cut for China? I, I wonder. I was sitting there wondering. But no, it, it's, um, yeah, so there's a lot of word. For, uh, that word gets from around what, a lot. What, what are you saying? Obama shows up in the first scene? Or? No. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> No, there are quite a few surprising cameos. Welcome, some kind of out of place. Um, but the most out of place actor in the entire film may be Leon Lai. Um, you know, we always say Donnie. Donnie is Donnie in a yeah. movie. Donnie plays Donnie. In a, essentially, he plays the opposite, opposite of, uh, of Donnie in a movie. But here, Leon Lai takes over as the Donnie of the film. Really? He has essentially the most intense shave ever caught on camera. Um, and and uh, there's a... There's a scene that that um, I'm sure that at no screening, at any screening, did anyone not laugh at that shot of Leon Lai, <laughs> and you see in the, you catch it in the trailer. I think it works even even better as a comedy in the film. Really? Um, yeah, I don't know what happened. I don't know why the filmmakers didn't think about it, but that look, that Leon Lai look, is just is just really I have no idea what they were thinking when they were shooting it. Um, you see it. Um, I think Paul, if you see it, you know which one I'm talking about. Yeah, um, and anyone who sees it will see, will see what I'm talking about. I'll definitely keep my eyes peeled for uh, the Leon live scene. But uh, is it good? Um, I think it, it will end up on my top 10 list at the end of the year, but um, I don't think it will be on the top five because the flaw is, is too apparent. It's too, it's too strong to, to not to ignore, I think. Mm. But still, a very strong film, I think. Very strong commercial film. 
I think. Um, so I think it's worth watching, definitely. All right. Our third East Screen film for this week is A Simple Noodle Story. Uh, this is the uh, remake of the film uh, Blood Simple. I don't know if you'd really want to call it a remake or sort of a reimagining. Um, again, I haven't had a chance to get out and see this one, although I am looking forward to it. Gotten a lot of uh, media press here in terms of promotion in the past few weeks. Uh, prior to my trip back to the States, I was seeing posters and Trailers running for it everywhere. Uh, Kevin, you want to give us a bit of a synopsis and your take on Simple Noodle, Simple Noodle Story? Um, I haven't seen uh, Blood Simple yet, but I've been told that plot-wise, it actually follows that film quite closely in terms of where what character each character does. But anyway, um, Simple Noodle Story takes place in a very surreal location in China where the hills are red and... It's all deserty and deserty, and you have no idea where it is. But anyway, it takes place in a isolated noodle stand uh, in the middle of this desert, and um, the owner's wife—I um, can't come up with any names right now because honestly, I don't remember much about the film, even though I saw it a few days ago. Uh, the owner's wife is having an affair with the um, one of the waiters of the restaurant. Um, so in the beginning of the film, the wife. Of the owner buys a gun from a Persian, uh, traveling Persian businessman or something. Very strange opening scene. Um, so then, but then has no, she has no idea what this gun will be used for yet. She thinks it will be, it will probably be good to defend herself against her husband, the owner, who actually abuses her um, at night, even though not in the way that you might imagine. Um, anyway, so they get the, so she gets this gun, and the relationship carries on. But then uh, you also have this policeman uh, played by Soon Hong Lei, who uh, part of a unit that investigates uh, adultery. So anyway, he finds out that that these two are having an affair. So he tells the owner and the owner hires him to kill the cheating pair. But of course, him being the um, smart detective, he has other plans in mind. And that's all about I should go into because um, after that, as I guess if you've seen Blood Simple, you know that there's a lot of twists, a lot of um, a lot of switched or, uh, loyalties and things like that. Um, and I liked the second half of the film. Let's I'll say first right now. I I like the second half of the film. I think that's when Zhang Yimou really really showed his filmmaking um, um, skills there with the pacing, the the use of cinematography, the um, just just general atmosphere wise. But then the problem is that the first half of the film, it's a very um, loud comedy, not loud as in noise wise, but just loud as in everything is flamboyant, everyone is overacting. And I've been told before that, that this film is supposed to be a very Northern Chinese humor. And I guess my humor has been way too Southern because um, when it's very Mo Lei Tao, kind of Hong Kong Mo Lei Tao, except it's in Mandarin. But then the thing is when, when Stephen Chow did it, I thought it was funny. But when they do it here, I didn't really think it was all that funny. Um, I just thought it was a little annoying, honestly, especially the the way that Zhang Yimou uses color to distract. I don't think it's intentional, but it's very distracting from the story. Um, like at one point, um, when Zhang Yimou cuts to the exterior shots of the hills, like the red hills, and you see the trailer again, it's very pretty. 
the, the colors are very strong. And people just started in my audience in the screen, they started talking about how they did the hill. They keep going on and on about those hills and they forget the story going on. So Zhang Yimou is, is as always, he's very, uh, he pays a lot of attention to colors and a lot of, almost too much so here because uh, the main, the, the young waiter is always in pink. And it's just really distracting. No idea why he's in pink, why these other people are in, in bright green or orange. I have no idea why they're wearing costumes like this. I have no, no idea what time it is. It's very absurd. It's not supposed to be, I'm sure it's not supposed to be in accurate at all in terms of historical uh, wardrobe or whatever, but it's very distracting. I get why he wants to do this absurdist um, alternate reality period film. I can, I can see the intention of it. But I think Zhang Yimou goes so far as to do to paying attention to all the superficial things that it becomes distracting from the plot. Um, now the the waiter, the guy in pink, is supposed to be this big, huge um, comedy phenomenon this last year in China. And like I said, I have no idea why he's this big comedy phenomenon because he's really not all that funny. He just sort of turns it up, turns up the acting by about two notches. And he plays. He kind of reminds me of um, Wang Chunam actually. Mm. Uh, like a like a Chinese Wan Chou Lam, I guess. But even then, Wan Chou Lam is only sort of half half in terms of really making me laugh. Um, and also, even though he plays, even though Zhang Yimou plays the first half like a comedy, the problem is that he also tries to inject this emotion, these emotional stuff, into the wife's character. And the thing is, he plays it very seriously. Like we're supposed to feel for these characters, but I don't feel anything for them at any point you're watching all these twists and these twists are clever even though the cohen's brother the cohen's came up with it and they're very clever and like i said Zhang yimou was very good with the technique side of things like he's very good pacing it's very good atmosphere um generating tension very good but you never get involved with these characters he he uses the visual to 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 serve himself he uses the filmmaking technique to serve atmosphere at that moment but he never does anything to really serve the the story or the characters so, so does, does the film does the film actually switch genres at some point because you you seem to bring out this idea that there's a there's a switch and that you liked the the second half of the film more than the first half the first half being more of a <clears throat> sort of a mole tao type of of feel does it does it try and get serious and and highly dramatic in the second half or uh, is there is there because from the trailer as we talked about before um you know there's there's one trailer out there that that sort of shows the silliness that's going on but then uh, there's another one that that shows uh, a much darker uh shows a much darker kind of spin on the film um does it does, yeah. it does it try and you know get this this notion of being heavy-handed in the second half actually no paul that's the that's the same trailer I know it seems like two different trailers, but yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It is, it it's, is the, the same. It's yeah. The same, yeah, that's it. That's right. It's the same trailer, but it's like, it's like two different films. Um, at right, one point. right, right. There is a, a shift to to very dark thriller, but not not dark as in not dark as in like it's dramatic. It's dark as in like I said, it generates a lot of tension and 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 it, it, there's a lot of atmospheric stuff going on. Like, um, but the shift isn't as abrupt as trailer suggests if you see enough hong kong movies then you should you should be fine with the, the switch i think mm. um it's so, not so this isn't this isn't something like um um running on karma which 
you know, very dramatically shifts from being sort of a um, kind of a crazy comedy at, at one point to, you know, a very serious kind of uh, spiritual take on, you know, life and death and things. Mm. Um, it, it, would you I wouldn't say it's say that it's extreme? That. I wouldn't say it's that extreme because um, it follows Murphy's Law, essentially, because the title of the film is that, uh, I think the title of the film is Free Gunshots, The Amazing Case of Free Gunshots. And they bring out the gun in the very first scene and they do use it, like Murphy's Law suggests. You bring out a gun, you have to use it, and they do use it. So it's, everything is, is in a way expected. Um, but it is, it is, the second half is so far from the, from the flamboyant comedy that I was, that it worked. It worked um thankfully now now you mentioned that one of the characters is is sort of a policeman uh and he's in charge of arresting people for adultery is there a is there a social commentary going on here in any way shape or form uh or no. or is it just you know just for the the sake of the narrative no it's only done i think to uh to essentially up what they call dramatic stakes to essentially put these this adulterous pair into danger. I think it's just to build the tension. Okay. And also, like I said, the the policeman ends up having his own his own idea of what I won't like. I said I won't spoil, but let's say the policeman doesn't doesn't do much policing, mm. if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And um, Sun Hong Lee is very good in the role. Um, Sun Hong Lee plays it completely deadpan. At no point does he ever smile or even show much emotions. And that worked. And that's really the hardest pull off in the comedy. And he pulled it off really, really well, I have to say. So unlike the, the flamboyant actors, he gave a really good contrast. And I think his performance was the only one that worked for me in the entire film. Let's move on to our West Screen films for this week, continuing on with some of the big Hollywood films that have come out recently. The first film we want to talk about is the sequel to the vampire hit sensation Twilight, and that is uh, Twilight New Moon. Um, this film continues the story of the somewhat odd relationship between the human Bella and her... Uh, her lover and boyfriend, Edward, who happens to be a vampire. And in this story, as their relationship progresses, um, they're, they're forced apart. Um, after an incident in which Edward accidentally uh, hurts Bella, he feels she would be better off without him. Uh, he feels that he's a danger to her. And so he leaves along with the rest of, of his little clan. Um, this leaves Bella in a somewhat uh, distraught state, and she ultimately finds solace in her good friend Jacob. Um, but as she finds out very quickly, Jacob is not the Jacob that she knew growing up. He is starting to develop into a young and attractive, full-blooded, shirtless 
male. Um, <laughs> and we are constant, constantly reminded of the shirtless fact throughout the film. Um, however, Jacob, too, uh, tends to have a secret. And his secret is, in fact, that he is part of a tribe of werewolves. Um, and I, that is a little bit of a spoiler if you haven't seen the trailer. But if you watch the trailer, you pretty much know what's going on. Um, and so ultimately her relationship starts to develop closer and closer with Jacob. Um, and ultimately she is called upon to make a decision between her overwhelming desire to be with Edward and this new budding romance that she's having with Jacob. So that's the that's New Moon sort of in a nutshell. There are there are some other interesting aspects that are alluded to that I guess go on into the later books and will be in the later films of the series with uh, some of the politics of the vampires and and sort of their world and some of the some of the reasonings for the werewolves being who they are and and doing what they do and Bella sort of being you know caught in the middle uh, of all of this. Um, overall, I'd say that the film is. For, was for me uh, much more interesting than the first one. And again, as I've listened to other film podcasts and podcasts about Twilight in particular, um, hear, hearing some ladies present their take on it, uh, for example, uh, there's a podcast, uh, I think it's the Bite Club podcast, which is uh, hosted by um, all, all ladies uh, talking about the film. They acknowledge that this is a film where they are the target demographic, and people like myself and Kevin certainly are not. Um, so I do recognize the fact that I am not the target demographic for these books or for the film. Um, but that being said, I'd have to say that this one I felt was a little bit stronger from a guy's perspective. There's a little bit more action. Uh, you've got more effects and more money being spent here, and that does show up on screen a little bit. Although I would say that it's maybe not quite as compelling as some of the other vampire or werewolf movies that are out there from a guy's perspective. I think that if you, you know, you were to talk, take a, take a survey of guys that you'd probably find a lot more wanting to go see something like underworld and uh, you know, uh, the, you know, the werewolves in depicted there and the vampires depicted there in that film, as opposed to sort of the shirtless, and uh, the the emo uh, vampires that you have going on here who don't actually ever drink blood. Uh, I don't think I saw <laughs> one neck being sucked on um, in, in the course of this film. And, you know, nobody, nobody burns up in the sunlight. They just glisten, um, <laughs> you know. And, and again, this is Stephanie Meyer's take on it, which, again, is serving a specific demographic. But I think as a film, it does come off slightly stronger than the original although perhaps not quite strong enough to draw in a lot of people outside of the main fan base of the novel series. Um, Kevin, you want to give your two cents in and tell us if you are a uh, Team Jacob or Team Edward groupie? Damn it, I was going to ask you that question, Paul. <laughs> Tim Edward or Tim, Tim Jacob? I'm, I'm on Team, team Weiss, uh, Director <laughs> Chris Weiss. All right. Um, I... I Okay, there, there there are different strings to the two directors that have taken on this this uh, saga, quote unquote saga, so far. Um, the first director, uh, Catherine Hartwick, she kind of worked from her background in uh, sort of teenage problem films and and worked it out, worked the film like a teenage teenage romance film. 
And you know, that's fine for that story. Um, I'm I like Chris White's take here a lot more because it really takes on the mythology aspect of the of the whole whole story. And um directorially, there's uh, it's more impressive, visually is more impressive. Uh so for me, I think I like this better than the first movie as well. Um but that being said, it's really only relative because I still think the whole story of Twilight is kind of problematic. I mean, look at this girl. You take this girl who has to choose a guy who essentially wants who wants her quote unquote blood, but doesn't want to take it unless he marries her. Uh, sorry, no spoiler. Um, and then you got a guy who goes out to the woods with other naked guys. <laughs> how come no no one does anyone come out and say why can't you like a normal human being like everyone else no one has a, that kind of there's no irony in this entire thing and none of the characters act rationally um the actors are are horribly wooden here um kristen stewart plays like a, a depressed jodie foster part because she plays jodie foster's daughter in, in, in panic room and learn too much from there and then Robert Pattinson, the guy who plays Edward, can't look at anyone in the eye when he's speaking. Um, and then, and then you got the 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 shirt. Uh, what's his name? Taylor Lautner, who Taylor plays. Lautner, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, plays Jacob, who's looking like he's a uh, he's a Native American Edison Chan. <laughs> <laughs> you see that the crooked smile. <laughs> okay, okay, I I know I'm not like I said I know I'm not the target demographic here, but. The acting, the the writing, um, they're so distracting. But thankfully, Chris Weiss does something with it, with the with the whatever he can he, he can work with. And you know, I think it's half it's half entertaining the film. I yeah. I wasn't bored at all, honestly. Well, I was I was bored in some parts, pr- particularly the parts where you know Bella is going through her her mourning phase, uh, and and then she gets. You know, she she finds that uh, she needs to. She becomes an adrenaline junkie basically because <laughs> she'll get these warning messages in her subconscious uh, from Edward, and that's the only way she can see him. And I don't know if it's if it's the character in at this point in time or if it's the performance. I think it might have been more the performance. I really, I don't. I'm not having a good connection with um, the. The actress uh, Kristen Kristen Stewart, yes, uh, who's playing this character. I didn't really care for her in the first film. I didn't really care for her here, um, and it was just it was like you know just this whole emo kind of oh well, I can't live without him. What am I going to do? You know, I was like, you know, go ahead and you know end it already. <laughs> I mean, come <laughs> on, just get the story moving something um, because and they really sort of dragged that out. And again, this, uh, you know, this is this is really prime stuff for for the young female demographic, because, you know, you have a character here who, you know, like you said, she's got tons of normal guys who like her. Right. I mean, that has been the premise of the last film. It's it's in this film. You know, it's like anytime there's an opening, it's like all the guys in her little clique, they all like her. Um, but she's not interested in any of them. So this isn't a case of a girl who's like ignored by everyone. She has to, she can only have these special relationships with these special, you know, super powered beings. Um, you know, Edward, because he's this immortal, you know, vampire who who chooses not to, you know, drink her blood. And, and then Jacob, who becomes, you know, the buff um, alpha male 
kind of character who's who's also you know special and then it's so it's it's that whole you know she's special because she's got these special guys who like her and everybody else else around her gets ignored basically um and that's one of the things i kind of missed in this film is that i really liked some of her her friends in you know the characters that played her friends in the first film and they're just kind of sort of brushed off here you see them in a couple scenes but there's not a whole lot um done with them and their relationships with her um as far as you know my own preference i'm definitely a team jacob uh person um, you know <laughs> you're you're, I, you're running into the woods of other topless guy kind of guy well yeah. no i wouldn't go that far um, <laughs> but i'm you know it's it, you know he i i sympathize with the underdog you, you know yeah yeah you, I, i'm definitely and, yeah. and you know literally he is the underdog here i mean you're you know he's he he's the character that you know he's he's the third wheel character the character that's the friend that's the nice guy that you know is going to treat the girl well but she wants to go for the jerky guy who's gonna you know treat her bad a kind kind of a thing although you know in his defense i guess edward doesn't really treat her bad uh he just wants to suck her blood um <laughs> so, so quote unquote yeah. suck but <laughs> um but i i was you know i did enjoy you know the the dynamics between the wolves and the vampires and you know some of the politics involved and uh, as people have said in other podcasts and things you know dakota fanning makes an appearance if you blink you miss her um but apparently she's got a bigger role later on in the story so that's something to look forward to and the next film as i understand it's being done by the director who did 30 days of night so I'm expecting that in the next film, there's going to be a lot more action than we've been given thus far, which, you know, I, I can get behind that. Um, but yeah, again, I'm, I'm, you know, I just, this was, this was just, just too emo for me to really get involved with. And the only character that I ended up sort of rooting for um, was Jacob. And I, to be honest, I was really more interested in, in some of the other characters in his little pack. And I would probably be, you know, I would, I could definitely see myself getting behind a spinoff movie just about those guys, you know, and, and sort of the things they do and, and their own little sort of, you know, uh, alpha male running with the wolves, howling at the moon, you know, kind of, kind of thing. I was more interested in what actually happened to Jacob, you know, because basically he's there, he's her friend, they're building a bike. Uh, and then, you know, this something happens uh, and he goes off and Bella ends up having to go and find him a little bit of a spoiler and, and he's changed by that point i i was as in he's running naked everywhere now yeah i mean <laughs> i wanted to, i wanted to i want was very interested to see okay well what happened did he just you know did he grow you know wolf puberty at some point and it just happened or was there a ritual or you know cuz the cuz the guys in that pack all have tattoos on their arms and um, I was just, there was a lot there that I was really interested in. Maybe that they go into that in the book, but I really wanted to see that here in the film. Okay, Paul, question. Yeah. What is your favorite cheesy line of the film? Oh. And there's a ton of them. My pick is uh, uh, Kristen Stewart saying, you're, you're sort of beautiful. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess that would be one. I, I, I just remember, I just, I just remember... I, I can't remember specific lines. The only things I remember is sort of the 
the ghostly images of Edward where he'd just show up and say, don't do this. You, you, you don't have to do this. You know, and it's like, okay. And she's, you know, she, she's, she's just continuing to do it. Um, and then I think Dakota, Dakota Fanning had like one line. She said, pain. And she made Edward writhe in agony. And I was like, yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 that's a favorite line. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's my, that's my team Jacob team. coming through, you know. And, um, <laughs> so, yeah, I th- you know, I, I could see myself growing to like this series more and more, depending on what they do with it in, you know, in some of the, the later films that come out. Um, I, I don't know much about the story, but in listening to some of the other podcasts that talk about the book series and their expectations for the films, I've gotten a few minor spoiler hints as to what's going to happen, where these characters are going to end up. And, you know, I could see myself growing to like this, the, the story more as it develops. Um, but again, that's going to depend a lot on the directors and, and what they feed me visually. Um, for this film, I'd, as I said, it's a little bit stronger than the first one, but there was just a lot of emo stuff that I had to sort of wade through to, to sort of get to the meat part that I really liked. Now it's time to talk about the really big film of the holiday season, and that is James Cameron's Avatar. Um, not, not Alvin the Chipmunks? Oh, Alvin and the Chipmunks. Yeah, we've got to talk about that. Next week. Next <laughs> no, week. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll save the best for last. Um, so yes, Avatar, the much-anticipated, uh, visually spectacular film, uh, long-awaited return of James Cameron, and... Uh, what can we say about Avatar? If you haven't seen this film, uh, you got to go see it. Uh, that that will we'll just I'll just say that right from the get go, from my perspective. Um, I'll, to give you a little bit of a synopsis of the story, basically there's a planet called Pandora. Uh, humans are there, and they have this resource they're trying to get, which is called unobtainium. And in order to get it, they have to try to work with the native populations called uh, the Navi. And so as a result, there's a science team that has figured out a way to um, utilize these vessels. They're they're like these cloned vessels, these cloned beings that are made of part human DNA and part Navi DNA. Um, And then they can project themselves, uh, their presence inside of these, these physical bodies, and they can use those to move uh, among the natives of the planet. Um, so this tells the story of a young soldier whose brother, twin brother was killed. Uh, his twin brother was a scientist. He is a simple Marine, a simple grunt, and he's asked to come on board because he shares the exact same DNA sequence as his brother, and so he can control his brother's uh, avatar. Um, and so he is projected into this strange and alien world, so a little bit unprepared, um, and he is taken into the tribe at, at, at one point, and they decide to try and teach, teach him their ways. All the while, you've got um, a lot of politics and going on from the company that's trying to get at this resource, which, of course, the biggest deposit happens to be right under uh, the place where the Navi are living. 
and uh, you've got a, a mili- some, you know, a lot of military presence there. Um, it's not official military, but they're like mercenaries um, who've been brought in. And ultimately, all of this comes to a head with the military, the corporation, and the scientists all having to choose a side. Uh, and this results in some pretty spectacular battle scenes towards the end. Um, the movie itself is visually stunning, as I said. It's not without its problems, a few of which I'll get into. Um, n- from a narrative perspective, this is a really simple story. Um, there's, I could pretty much tell you that if you've seen Dances with Wolves, um, some other some other shows have talked about uh, the animated film Fern Gully. If you take those two films, you splice them together, and you throw in some Smurfs coloring, um, basically that's the story that you've got here. Um, but people are not going to go see this film for its deep, deep narrative. You're going to go see this film because of the amazing visuals that James Cameron has been able to produce here. Um, if you haven't seen the film and you're thinking about seeing it, I'd say definitely try and see it in IMAX 3D because I think this really makes a difference. I know some people have seen it in 2D. Um, they liked it, but they didn't think it was all that amazing. I think that 3D and especially 3D IMAX, if you can see it on that size of a screen, can really really make a big difference in terms of your overall viewing experience. Um, Kevin, let me throw the ball over to you and get some of your thoughts on Avatar. Hmm. I saw it on a digital IMAX 3D, which apparently is not as uh, big as the traditional IMAX. Did you watch on a traditional IMAX, Paul? Uh, yes, I did. <clears throat> and then I wonder how it compares because um, digital IMAX is quite clear, but for some reason I kept thinking that wasn't as big as a real IMAX screen could have been. Mm. So how how so it is pretty mind because it, I was very impressed, really really impressed, um, especially on IMAX, especially on 3D. Um, and like, like you said, it's visually, it's very stunning. Um, but I keep thinking where I missed out on not watching it on IMAX 3D. And that's actually one, something I'm going to try to prove is that later on, I'm going to try and watch a two, 2D version on the biggest screen I can find when I go to Japan and, and see if it works there. And then maybe I get further thoughts, but right now, yeah. Um, Avatar, I think visually mind blowing, but something that we, I, I think you missed out, Paul, is that how, how well Cameron uses the classical narrative. I mean, he really sort of slowly brings you into the world. A lot of these uh, big blockbuster films these days, like Transformers or like, um, give me, throw me another one here. Um, 2012. Yeah, like 2012, immediately, like they blow you away with all these special effects to get you hooked. But Cameron uses the, the, the character, the story, slowly gets you going to the character. And then you slowly enter this world until the, the very ending. And it's, it's very classical and it's very well calculated. And I think it's really the strength of Cameron that I think something that we can't ignore here, I think. Well, um, I, would, I would agree that, I mean, his, his touch is, is very well done. And I don't mean to discount the film mm-hmm. when I'm critical of the narrative. It's just that the, the story of, of an outsider, you know, um, going into a, a native culture getting accepted to become part of the tribe and then going beyond that, becoming like this, this chosen hero for the tribe, this defender of the tribe, a defender who works in a position against his own original culture in some cases. It's a tale that's been done 
um, many times before, you, you know, and, and you've, you've also got the environmental spin here of, of resource gathering and things. Um, I think that that in itself was just, you know, so predictable that it didn't engage me as much as I had hoped to on a narrative level. The, the other thing, the, my other big problem, I would say, if I have a problem, and again, these, these are more minor quibbles than anything else. This is an amazing film. I don't want to discount it. Um, Sam Worthington, I think, is okay. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I, I, I think he was okay in Terminator Salvation, even though that was not a good film. Um, you know, he's, he's starring in a film that I'm really looking forward to next year, but I think he'll be okay. He doesn't have a, a very strong presence for me. Um, for me, the, the character that, that really captured the film was, um, uh, I can't remember her name, Zoe, you know, the, she was in Star Trek and, uh, uh, she plays the main love interest and the, the one that's kind of called upon to teach him the way, you know, the ways of, of the, the natives and the things that I think she does, the characterization that she brings is really, really strong and it, and it carried the film for me for the most part. Um, I was very happy to see Sigourney Weaver, but as some people have said elsewhere, you know, Sigourney Weaver is just pretty much channeling things she's already done in Gorillas of the Mist. Um, in, you know, I, she's not really playing a Ripley character here, but she is in the fact that she's against the corporation so it's her against the company man in a couple scenes, um, and then you've got this 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 character who's in charge of the mercenary company, who's very sort of straightforward and very simply, uh, very very simply characterized. He's 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 a template basically. He's a badass. Um, too. He he is, but he's 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 simply I'm gonna go in and I'm gonna kill them all and nobody's gonna stop me, kind of kind of attitude yeah. that that you would expect in in this kind of role. And do, I, do you even remember that character's name? Actually, now that I think of it, I don't remember the character's I name. I don't. I don't. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that, go and look it up. But you you don't need to. I mean, you you you, yeah. you know what type of character he is, and you you've seen him. You've seen that character type so many times in similar films. Yeah. The thing is, is that there's so much more interesting things that they could have really gone into with the the planet itself and, and the way that the things connect to each other, um, the idea that this planet itself acts as sort of a mainframe internet kind of database thing. I mean, there there's a whole lot more that Cameron alludes to in creating this world that I think they could have spent more time developing rather than sticking to, um, okay, he's got to learn how to ride the six-legged horse. And, okay, next step, he's got to go learn how to ride the flying lizard. And, okay, now he's got to, you know, go get the bigger flying lizard. You know, it's, it, those, those are sort of the color-by-numbers um, steps to constructing this kind of narrative. And I think there was a lot more that they could have done there's a lot, a lot, lot of areas they could have explored or talked about. Um, yeah, the, the, I, I, there was one big hole in the film, and this may be a little bit of a spoiler. So if you haven't seen the film, you might want to skip ahead at this point. But, you know, the whole film draws up to this big battle at the end, right? Mm -hmm. And the area that they've chosen to stage the battle is 
specifically selected to limit the ability of the military and all their you know technology and machines to communicate because it's supposed to be a, a, a dead sort of a dead area where their communications and their radar is not going to work right right um but the, now the the avatars themselves um are working on some kind of signal because basically the technology is they go they lie in this coffin and the coffin has sensors around them and it projects them into the avatar but if you cut power to the coffin uh, they're, they're, they wake up, their projection, their connection to the avatar is, is severed, which means there's some kind of wireless signal being sent continuously, right, that allows them to maintain that connection. So how could they possibly operate in this dead area where, you know, radio and, and things like that are not supposed to work well? Um, because these, you know, they're broadcasting from mild, you know, their, their base of operation is like, you know, far away. So I don't know, there, there, there was, there was technologically, there was a couple holes, I think that, that could be seen, but again, these are minor, minor things. This is definitely a film that is a must see. I think that this is, some people have compared it with star Wars. Um, I would agree in the sense that this is a, this is probably a game changing film for filmmaking. Um, because of some of the technology that Cameron has invented and that has been produced in, in, for simply making movies um, and creating digital actors, uh, this is probably going to serve, this is going to serve as a benchmark film. I think it's definitely raised the bar and probably gotten a lot of filmmakers out there to, you know, to raise an eyebrow and say, oh, so uh, this is going to be the new standard now. Um, now that being said, we might get a, we're probably going to get a lot of spin-off garbage for a long time. But you know, you look at sort of films that set a certain bar, or set a certain dynamic, like The Matrix or like Star Wars, um, when it comes to things like effects and visuals. And I have a strong feeling that this is going to be a film that does that as well. Our final topic, uh, our final film to talk about in West Screen this week is Sherlock Holmes, uh, the U.S. and U.K. production starring Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law, with Robert Downey Jr. taking up the classic role of the detective, famous detective Sherlock Holmes, although this is not the Sherlock Holmes that you may be used to. This is not your grandfather's Sherlock Holmes. Um, in this story, you have the... The young investigator, um, played by Robert Downey Jr., going after uh, a villain uh, who his name is Lord Blackwood. And Lord Blackwood has been accused of committing some serial murders. And very early in the film, he is put to death, and but he quickly resurfaces. And so there is a mystery afoot, and it's up to Sherlock Holmes and Jude Law to figure out how it is that this character has come back from the dead. Uh, he's tied to the occult, and there's an organization, a secret society, that is moving into positions to try and take control of the parliament. 
Um, so, Kevin, what did you think of uh, Sherlock Holmes and, Holmes and Guy Ritchie's take on these characters? I'm not sure if I'm the best judge of a Sherlock Holmes movie because I'm not too familiar with the with the whole um, the history of Sherlock Holmes. I, I know, you know, the 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 um, cliches of it. You know, quotes like you know, "Elementary Watson," that that kind of thing. Basil, I know about Basil those... Rathbone, baby, Basil Rathbone. <laughs> Actually, I don't remember that line coming up in the film at all. Yeah, no, I, I don't. Elementary, my dear Watson. Yeah. I, I don't. Th- I don't think it did. If it did, it was uh, done very subtly. Yeah. Um so but as as a it's a it's a big blockbuster I was very entertained. Um it is not the Sherlock Holmes that I would expect. Um even though a lot of people come out and say actually in the books um Sherlock Holmes is a is a kung fu expert or, or, or fighting expert or something like that so it's not I'm not supposed to be so surprised but like I said really su- really surprised to see a six pack Sherlock Holmes uh going topless and and and, and knowing how to punch people. Yeah. That was uh, that was a surprising thing, and also if we're talking about, I think I, I remember I mentioned the words ambiguously gay earlier. Um, Sherlock Holmes and Watson definitely ambiguously gay here. Uh, yeah, well, to be fair, Watson Watson has a fiance. Okay, so <laughs> yeah, this, yes, yes. This is this is this may be an unrequited love that's being set up here. <laughs> well, who's wearing the pants in a relationship? You see, is very yeah. clear. That, yeah, but nevertheless, um, I. Quite enjoyed the the Robert Downey Jr. Um, as always, he was very good in the film. Um, uh, even though it's sort of starting to get down the Robert Downey Jr. ism, if you know what I mean, there's something yeah. you, see, you see in Iron Man and something you see in his bigger role is that that kind of Robert Downey Jr. charm also carries on here, except he's in a British accent. Um, but him and Jude Law have very good chemistry together. Um, now, now I said the word ambiguously gay. I think the words chemistry might come up something else in other people's minds. But no, they they're quite well together um, as a as a as a crime fighting duo. Um, the the script, even though it's also it's a little bit too complicated and almost too intentionally trying to be clever at points, um, is still very engaging. Um, Guy Ritchie, maybe not the best choice kind of an interesting choice to bring this material to the screen, but if you see what they're trying to go for, Guy Ritchie is a very good choice. Um, so I have no idea as a Sherlock Holmes movie how this how this plays, but for me it was entertaining, it was fun. Um, not a great movie by any means, um, but I don't think it's trying to be. Hmm. Um, and I look forward to the actually Sherlock Holmes franchise if they keep keep this um, this standard uh, in the future. I, I look forward to it. I, w- I wouldn't mind keep watching it. Yeah, well, they they've definitely set this up for at least one sequel, if if not more. Um, I guess we'll have to wait and see what the film does in terms of revenues as to whether they'll go forward with that. Uh, myself, I'm not a huge Guy Ritchie fan, so I approach this film with a little bit of trepidation, and I can't say that I came away loving it. Uh, it was entertaining. In part, I think more so because of the two leads. Um, I think yes. that that yeah, the chemistry between the two actors and what they bring to the role works really well. And I could see them, you know, I could see this re- this pairing going forward. I would I would go back to see them um, in in other films just because of that. The the plot here, um, the, the, this the the whole thing with Lord Blackwood and the occult. And then there's some steampunk thrown in at, at some points. Um, that's interesting. The, the, the sort of reimagining of Sherlock Holmes as a pit fighting, um, a little bit of a OCD 
type of character. He, I got the sense he was channeling, channeling a little bit of uh, Mr. Monk. For those of you who've ever watched the Monk TV show, um, you know, he he's an interesting character, but I never really got the sense that this was Sherlock Holmes for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like an alternative reality kind of Sherlock Holmes. You know, you, I I think that the visually, some of some of the scenes were, you know, the Guy Ritchie, you know, using some of what he knows in terms of action and things to try and spice things up. Um, I I liked the way that um, the the character would do sort of a breakdown of what he was going to do in a fight. You know, he'd say um, uh, slap like sl- slap yeah. to the ear, punch to the jaw to dislocate the jaw, punch to the rib, breaking through ribs. He'd go through this whole sequence, and and, and you'd see it as he's going through it in his mind, and then he'd do it and he'd execute it sort of in sped up time. I, I kind of like that, but again, this is not something that I would associate with uh, Sherlock Holmes. Um, <clears throat> so, again, I think it's an interesting combination, but I came away not really getting the sense that I was watching uh, a, a Sherlock Holmes film, per se, but I was watching something else. Um, and again, it, it was entertaining for the most part, although the plot was kind of convoluted in place. It's kind of hard to follow. You know, it's, you've got this secret society planning to take over parliament. Um, and they're trying to use one means to do it. And actually there's, a, there's another thing going on. And then you've got this whole sort of relationship, this love, re, this love relationship that um, Robert Downey Jr.'s character has with um, this character, Irene. And of course she is the lead in to, the this mystery character who sets up the possibility for a sequel um all that's fine by the end i think that the you know the payoff sort of the final the final standoff was less than less than engaging um but again this is more of a film about the two characters themselves and watching their sort of back and forth banter that's when when that's on screen um that's when the film's at its best when when that's not there, when some of the other stuff that's being put forth to sort of make the plot go forward, I think it loses a little bit uh, of of its draw. I think my problem is that the Sherlock Holmes character is so brilliant that, and I, I don't want to point as a spoiler, but it seems like nothing challenges him. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Even, even at the end, you think he was challenged, but something else happens. It, it, it sort of loses, you sort of loses any sort of... Um, way to invest yourself or into following Sherlock Holmes. It's almost a, the way that they set it up was almost like all this manipulation that yeah. they waited till the end to, you know, do. Yeah. And, do and, and a little bit uh, in, in a couple scenes, there's some, you know, you, you go through an area and you see the character, you know, the camera focuses on an object or maybe the character picks up an object and looks at it. It does. You don't spend a lot of time on it, so it doesn't seem really notable. But then later, they go through sort of a whole sort of CSI sequence, you know. And, and there's a big long explanation. Oh, this object comes from the tip of, you know, South America, where the natives of New Guinea use it to, you know, poison their ancestors, and it causes paralysis. And this object is, you know, and I that that kind of you know reveal is a little bit less engaging for me. 
Um, you know, I've come to I've come to expect that kind of of detective work um, on in some of the more modern crime mysteries that we see on TV. I wasn't really expecting to see that here. Um, so yeah, again, I'd say that go see this film if you're if you're a fan of Robert Downey Jr., Jude Law, you'd like to see them sort of play off each other. They do that very well, and and that in itself was enough to make me enjoy the film. Um, so that may be enough for you as well. All right, that's going to wrap things up for our extended holiday episode this week. Um, Kevin, you're going to be off to Japan very shortly. Is that correct? Yes, next Tuesday. Yeah, so you'll be out and about, and we will try to have Kevin uh, do a broadcast from Japan if he has time, if he's not out watching too many movies and uh, buying too many movies and uh, spending too much money over there, eating too much sushi. Um <laughs> But next time we will be coming back, it will be the new year, and we'll be looking at some of our best and worst picks of the 2009 year. We'll try and have a few 2010 predictions on things we're looking forward to seeing, and we'll talk about the new Jay Chow film, Treasure Hunter, and uh, New York, I Love You, and Paranormal Activity, and hopefully Alvin and the Chipmunks 2, the big blockbuster of the holiday. Um, so that's what we'll be hoping to cover next time, provided, uh, Kevin has, a has, has some free time on his hands. Uh, in the meantime, again, if you'd like to follow along with what we're doing, uh, you can visit us at our website, www.concast.com. And if you'd like to follow along with Kevin and his exploits as he traverses from Hong Kong into the world that is Japan over the next week. You can follow him over at his uh, blog. Are you going to be blogging while you're in Japan? Yes, I'm going to try and uh, start the blog again after the new year. Good. That's my new year resolution. Yes. And of course, you can follow me on my Twitter, uh, The Golden Rock, one word. You can read my latest English uh, language film reviews on movies.yp.com.hk. I've last reviewed Alvin and the Chipmunks, the biggest film of the holiday season. And also I'm doing New York, I Love You. I also did uh, Twilight and things like that. And so you can follow me there. And of course on lovehkfilm.com. Yeah. And also I want to throw a quick mention out to the lovehkfilm.com website. Um, Kozo has been doing a best of the decade for Hong Kong cinema. And he's been posting up uh, some of the results each day from people who voted. Uh, both Kevin and I have submitted submitted our votes early on, and when we come back next time, I think we'll maybe we may talk a little bit about um, our own picks for what we consider the best of Hong Kong cinema over the past decade. So those will be some of the things that we can look forward to. Hopefully, in the next show or possibly the next two shows, uh, depending on if we have too much material. And so, Kevin, until then, we will wish you a safe trip. And Thank you. To the audience, to the listeners, we will wish you good viewing and a happy and safe new year. And we will see you in 2010. Happy 2010, everyone.
a hot pot is is a is something that local people really like to eat when it gets pretty cold, right? Yeah, but I eat it from summer to winter, and I'm sure I'll eat it from winter to summer this year too. Yeah. So you're sort of an all yeah all year round, you know, Christmas and hot pot every day kind of a guy, right? Yes. That's right. Christmas every day for me if that makes <clears throat> hot pot. And even though it can look like frozen peas most of the time, that that was quite that was that was yeah. Quite cool. I think I think Eakin would be good in the next Twilight movie. I don't know. <laughs> Just give him glittery skin, and he'd be fine. <laughs>